Now in the 12th month, month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may all be seated. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Just a few announcements this morning, and then we'll jump in as we finish here in Esther chapter 9 and 10. Uh, Holly Grove Baptist Church, that's Brother Frank's church, is inviting all past and present military members uh, for a Veterans Appreciation Dinner. That's Saturday, February the 19th at 5 o'clock. It should be in the bulletin. Uh, There's a way to RSVP. Uh, to a phone number, call them, let them know you're coming so they can prepare. That's uh, February the 19th at 5 o'clock over at Holly Grove Baptist Church. Again, that's Brother Frank's church. Uh, two, three other quick announcements, then we'll pray for our youth pastor and we'll jump in uh, to God's holy word. Uh, this week is 58 years of marriage for Ronald and Eleanor, so let's give it up for them. I, I say that... Um, what, what a testimony that is for, for me as a, a young man uh, that's only been married for uh, just over 15 years uh, to have 58 years. That's an amazing testimony to, to God and Miss Eleanor's patience. Um, I'll, pay, I'll pay for that one later, I'm sure. Uh, marriage has not been, become a very sacred thing in our country, so to celebrate uh, 58 years. What a, what a testimony to God's faithfulness to you and your uh, demonstration to, to the rest of us as a church. We need to celebrate that with them and praise God for that. Uh, one other announce, two other announcements. Um, please pray for our missionary Jeff. He is in Southeast Asia. Jeff is uh, someone that we've committed to pray for, committed to support. Uh, we got a, uh, a message from him yesterday that there's some internal conflict within uh, the denomination there uh, that they're walking through and wrestling through. So let's pray uh, that the enemy does not get a foothold there and disrupt uh, the work of God there. And then uh, lastly, uh, some of you may know this, have heard this, uh, pray for Davis. That is Miss Patty and Mr. Gary's grandson. He was rushed to uh, the ER down at Vanderbilt last night. He was uh, having difficulty breathing, but we praise God this morning uh, that he's home um, and he's doing well. And so it's more a, a continued prayer, but a, a thanksgiving of prayer. I want to read this passage as a way that we want to remember and be thankful for all that God is doing and has done to Miss Eleanor and Ronald's 
a marriage to the prayer of uh, and praying for Davis and watching the hand of God. It comes out of Psalm chapter nine, uh, verse one and two. And I, I pray this would be our posture this morning. This is what the psalmist David writes. He said, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And I will recount all your wonderful deeds and I will be glad and extol you. I'll praise your name, O Lord most high. I pray that would be true for us this morning, that we would recount all the wonderful deeds that God is doing. It's so easy for us to get discouraged as we look at this world around us and forget and to be able to see the hand of God, but we can trust that God's hand is still moving and he's still accomplishing his wonderful deeds. And one of the ways we've been asking that God would reveal his kindness to us is through a youth pastor. Uh, the committee met last Sunday evening put together a job description, and we uh, posted that um, unbeknownst to us till this morning because they just got back to us. The file that we sent uh, was not able to be opened, so we're sending out a new file. That's why I haven't got any resumes yet. So just continue to pray that uh, God is working in this and that God will bring the right person to us. Let's go before the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump into Esther chapter 9 and 10. God, we ask through the Holy Spirit this morning that you would still our hearts. And in stilling our hearts, you would remind us of your wonderful deeds. One of those is just giving us breath in our lungs this morning. Giving us energy, the capacity to, to wake up and to come here and to fellowship with one another and to sing these songs. And what we sang this morning is so true. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I pray that would be true for me. I pray that would be true for each of us. I pray that would be true for us as a body this morning. And God, we do come to you and we praise you for your healing touch on Davis's lungs last night and this morning. Continue to pray for him this morning, that you'd give those lungs strength, and you'd continue to heal his body, but we're so grateful for your protection uh, over him over these last 24 hours. We do come, we plead with you on behalf of Jeff and the church in Southeast Asia. We know, God, that where he is is a very dangerous place that has strong opposition to you and the gospel. Satan would have no better pleasure than to stop your work there in that godless country. So we pray for him. We pray that you'd pour out your wisdom on him. We pray, pray you pour out your safety on him as he would lead and proclaim the gospel. And God, I pray that you would use that man to bring unification to the body to further your kingdom. And this morning, present. God, I'm grateful for Eleanor and Ronald and their testimony of their faithfulness in their marriage. God, we don't hear stories of people celebrating 58 years of marriage much anymore. And we're grateful as a church for their witness to us. We pray that we would celebrate with them this week of your kindness, your goodness, and your faithfulness to them and their obedience back. 
Thank you again for their testimony. God, as we've been praying for the last several months, we come and we petition ourselves before you and we humble ourselves and plead with you that you would bring us a youth pastor. Someone that would boldly proclaim your truth to our students and lead our students to the cross. That this person, God, would love you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our students the same. So prepare them for us and what we've asked that you would prepare us for them and you would make it so clear to this committee who the person is that you have handpicked and you've been working on their life to bring them to this place and us to them. So lead us and guide us as we search. Make it so real and obvious who it is that you would have for us. And now, God, we come to your word, your holy word, your inerrant word, your inspired word, your infallible word. We ask that what the writer said would be true for us. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so for us this morning, we pray that the work of the word would penetrate our lives and our heart and divide the sinful things in our life. We come to a place of conviction and confession of that. Then, God, we come to a place of celebration for where is taking root in our lives and in our hearts that is enabling us to become more and more like you. God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that this morning your word would penetrate their heart and would take root and they would surrender their lives to you. And for us, God, that know you and trust you and have walked with you, I pray that your word would be the very thing that would bring sanctification to our life. Holiness to our life. I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach, to proclaim your word to us, your people. We pray for your faithfulness back to us. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen this morning. Here we are in Esther chapter 9 and 10. Uh, 10 is just three small verses. That's why I've lump them together. I'm going to kind of give a recap of this book this morning, and then next week we'll head into uh, just one of two places. I've still been wrestling with the Lord over the last several months, really six to eight months. I've been asking God to to lead me either into 1 John or into the book of James. Um, it, It depends what hour of the day it is. If you uh, ask me after service, I'd give you one answer. You ask me this afternoon after dinner, I'd give you another one. So I, I haven't uh, determined with the Lord where we're headed, but we'll head either into First John. First uh, John is all about love, loving God and loving one another. And the book of James is basically how are we to live out this Christian life. And so I'm just wrestling with the Lord where we'll go. So, But it will be either First John or James, unless the Spirit talks to me in a different way. But I've been studying both of those books over the last six to eight months, uh, just have not landed. But here we are, we're wrapping up Esther uh, this morning. The book of Esther, really, if you were to put it into a sentence, is the sovereignty of God always wins. The, the powerfulness of God will always win. And, and we've seen this, this is a book about the Jewish people, how they've been dispersed into exile, and God in his sovereignty has always said he's going to raise up a remnant of people to declare his gospel message. 
We see that throughout the Old Testament. The people of God are wicked. They fall away from God. God redeems them, brings them back uh, to proclaim his message. And God is going to use this one lady, Esther, to do that. Remember, Esther was just a teenage girl that was ripped out of her home and placed into King Asawaris' kingdom to become his, her, really her, her, his, his wife, the queen. And God sovereignly positioned her in such a way that she would gain influence with the king and begin to talk to the king about her people, the Jewish people. But if you remember, there's this man named Haman who hated the Jews. He hated the Jews because of one man named Mordecai. Mordecai was the, the, the stepfather, the uncle of Esther. But he hated Mordecai because there was this decree that went out that everyone would bow down to Haman. And yet one man defied that order. That was Malachi. Malachi was hated by Haman. Haman decided he was going to kill not only Mordecai, but all the Jews. And that word got back to Esther. And then Esther went before the king and pleaded with the king on behalf of God's people. God used Esther. And you know when chapter 4, Mordecai says she's nervous, she's in all kinds of anxiety around what she is to do, and she, the, uh, Mordecai says to her, that such a time as this, maybe this is why God has you here. We would say to us this morning, God has us here for a reason. What is that reason? What is that purpose in your life, in my life, and then as a life of the church? What does God have us for? We know what God has us here for. It's to claim his holy message to a wicked people and that they would repent and come to know him. And I'd ask, are we doing that? Are we fulfilling the mission on God on our life? Fast forward, Esther goes before the king. Uh, the, the, the king then reverses his decree and uh, Mordecai and Esther have this conversation with the king about this edict that's been placed. They hang Haman, and now we're kind of at the crux of the story, the climax of the story. If you remember back in the story, on this day, we'll see, Jared just read it a few moments ago, on this day was the day that Haman had declared that annihilation would happen to the Jews. And you remember last week we talked about Mordecai and Esther came to the king and said, no, on this day, let this decree be sent out that the the Jewish people can defend themselves. So here we are at this moment in history, this clash is about to happen. Which edict will come true? Will the annihilation of the Jews come to pass or will the Jewish people prevail? We can fast forward that into our own walk with the Lord and we know this to be true. There will be a day. We see this in Scripture. There will be a day that there will be a great war again. That, that Christ will return and declare victory over all the people. And there's this anticipation within all of us. Is that really going to happen? Is Jesus really going to triumph over evil and wickedness? We say yes, but do we live our lives that way? Do we really live our lives that we believe that Christ will come and reign supreme? Or do we live with all kinds of anxiety? I believe we're anxious people, if we're honest, because we don't truly believe that God's going to reign and is reigning. So we're anxious people. So we can say yes with our lips, but what do, do, does our heart say? 
And so here we are in this moment in history. We know how it ends, but the Jewish people don't know how it ends. The three things I want to look at in the text this morning, the reversal of the edict, the celebration that occurs, and finally, just as a way of conclusion in verse 10, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. So let's look at the great reversal. We see that in uh, chapter 9, verse 1. It says this. It says, now in the 12th month, which was the month of Adar, in the 13th day of the same, the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jew hoped to gain mastery over them. Remember, that's the first edict that went out, that, that Haman sent out the edict that on this day, the annihilation of the Jews were going to happen. We saw last week that there was this other edict that was sent out to the Jewish people that said, no, no, you can defend yourself. Here we come on the precipice of this moment, this clash that's going to happen. And by the grace of God and by the wisdom of the writer, he doesn't leave us hanging too long it says this and on that very day when the enemies of the jew hope to gain mastery over them the reverse happened what happened the jews gained mastery over those who hated them the jews gathered in their cities throughout all the providence providences of king ashuerus to lay hands on those who sought to harm them and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the people. That phrase, the fear of them had fallen all, on all the people, you can see that throughout the history of the Jewish people. When the Jewish people, the hand of God fell on the Jewish people, the fear of the Jewish people spread throughout all the land. What, what most commentaries say about that passage, that piece of the passage is the fear of the Lord fell on all the people. Because the people would see the hand of God. First question I have for you, I have for me, I have for the church is this. Is God's hand so much upon us that the fear of them has fallen on our community? And I don't mean a place of fear that they feel us, but a place of awe and reverence. Is God's hand on your life? Is God's hand on my life? Is God's hand on this church? In such a way that fear would fall on the people. That they fell on them. And then all the officials in, the, in all the province, the, the satraps, the governors, the royal agents, also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. And the Mordecai was great in the king's house. Remember, Mordecai had risen up to second in command. And his fame spread throughout all the land. And the man Mordecai grew more and more and more powerful. We'll go on to read in the next several verses, just because of the sake of time this morning, I won't read these passages in an entire, but, but, but for the next 17 verses, we see what happens, the reverse happens. This portion of scripture, if you just read it on its own, this is an R-rated movie. It's R-rated because it looks like a bloodbath. Because there's this conflict that's happening in the land between the Jewish people, God's holy people, and this wicked, wicked people. So much so that it says this. That within two days, there's the first day that it happens, there's 
500 men just in the capital that are killed by the Jewish people. Then because of that, the next, that, that evening, the, the, the queen goes before the king and the king says, hey, Esther, what else do you want? And she says, hey, give us one more day to kill all these people. Now on the surface, you're like, Esther, that's a little off. Like you just saw 500 people die. Why do you want a whole another day to kill more people? I'll get to that in a moment. The king in his power says, sure, we'll give you another day. So another day is sent out and decreed that the Jewish people have one more day to bring a defense to themselves. That next day we read in the text, 300 more men are murdered in the capital and another 75,000 throughout the land. That is a lot of people dying. And on the surface, you would think, how is this in the Bible? How does God going to redeem this? How is this okay? And on top of that, the 75,000 men, the 800 men, there's also 10 sons of Haman that are hung on the gallows, the very gallows that he himself erected to hang Mordecai. So within 48 hours, you see this massive amount of death that happens throughout all the land. I wonder if blood ran through the city those two days. But see, you have to take this story and you have to pull it out and put it in the context of Jewish history to make this okay. Because in and of itself, if you just read this, you'd think this is not okay. But if you take this portion of Scripture, you pull it out and you put it over top of Jewish history, you'll see how this is the fulfillment of what God had always desired and required. Just rewind back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15 is this moment in history between the Jewish people and these same wicked people. These same wicked people that God had said to Saul, hey, I want you to destroy because they hate me. Remember what Saul does. Saul just tries to be partially obedient. And we know this to be true about partial obedience. It's total disobedience. So here in this moment in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God says to the king, the very king that the people wanted, the very king that God's hand was on place, King Saul, and he said to Saul, hey, you've got to annihilate these people because these people want to annihilate my people. And I want to use my people to bring redemption to the whole world. And if you don't kill off these people, they're going to kill you all. And remember Saul's disobedience. Saul kills almost everyone, but saves a few. He plunders the whole land. And remember what happens. God comes back to Samuel, through Samuel to Saul, and he says to Saul, why, why have you been disobedient to me? What did I tell you to do? Did I not tell you to kill off all the wicked people? Saul said, yes. And he said, well, then how come you've been disobedient? And he basically says, I was in fear. In fear, I, I wasn't obedient. Now fast forward years and years later. God is going to use Esther to fulfill his purposes that he set forth hundreds of years prior. 
if you go back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, this is where God says, because of Saul's disobedience, I no longer see you as king. I'll choose a king for myself, a king that has my own heart, a king that will love me, a king that will obey me, a king that will bring my desires and my edicts true fruition. That would be King David that would then come into King Jesus. Just a few places of application, just as we see from this one text, is this. One man's disobedience leads to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people being affected by his disobedience. How often do we think to ourselves, my sin won't affect anyone else. That's just one little sin. It won't have effect on anyone else. It can be contained. It can be isolated. But we know this to be true in Scripture, that if you or I or we, the church, sins against the holy God, it will affect hundreds of people, if not thousands of people around us. That's what happened here. Just think about it for a moment. If hundreds of years prior, if Saul had just been obedient to God, and done what God had told him to do and eradicate those wicked people, hundreds of years later, 75,000 people wouldn't have died that day. Now, I'm not saying people wouldn't have died hundreds of years prior, but that sin continues on. And I, I wonder within those people, they had thought, man, we're scot-free. God's hand has relieved us from his destruction on us. The people, the wicked people would have known the decree that God had sent, set forth in 1 Samuel. And years later, I wonder if they had thought they had gotten away with that. But they hadn't. Because we know God will always fulfill his purposes. That's the second thing we see in this text. God is sovereign and will always accomplish his purposes. When God sets something forth, no matter what you or I do, God will always make sure his purposes get fulfilled, even if we sin against God. But know this, our sin plus God's sovereignty will affect a lot of people. And I promise you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. The next and last thing we see just in this portion of Scripture is that we need to remember that God wins no matter what, and that is still true for us today. And do we believe that today, that God has the ultimate victory over sin and death? Do we believe that, church? That God is sovereign, that God is all-powerful, and that God is all in control. He has ultimate victory over sin and death. Because that will lead us into the next portion of the scripture. See, if you don't believe that, you, the, the rest of the text won't make any sense to you. Or me. Or us. As a church. Because the next portion of scripture, verses 18 through 32, the end of chapter 9, is what we would see here is the celebration of God's victory. Because that's what it says. It says in the rest of the text, it talks about the celebration. Again, I don't have time to read it all. But over and over and over again in these few verses, 
we see these four things. And they're really captured in verse 22. Let's look at that together. It says this. And as, as the days to which the Jews got relief or victory from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned from them, from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday, that they should make the days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts and of food to one another and gifts to the poor. We see four things in this passage that must be true for us this morning. When God gets the victory, when God has the victory, and when we see God as the victor, four things must happen to each of us. Those four things are there must be a place of gladness for us. There must be a moment of feasting and ongoing feasting for us. There must be ongoing giving to us. And last, we must rest in that this morning. The question I've been asking myself, and I want to bring this question before the church this morning is this. Do I first realize the victory that God has won for me already? Do I understand what the cross means for me? Do I understand what the cross has done for me? How the cross has given me ultimate victory? Do you know that? Do we, the church, know that? Again, it's one thing to say yes with our lips. But if we were to examine our hearts, what do our hearts truly say about the cross? Because here's what's true and must be true about every believer in the room this morning. If you believe the cross and you believe the power of the victory that Christ suffered and died to give you victory over sin and death, then these four things must be true of every believer. You must have gladness. You must feast. You must give. And you must rest. These are the four primary reasons that we gather on Sunday morning. Do you realize that? Do I realize that? Do we, the church, realize that? Remember, Sunday morning is all about a reminder of what the cross did for us as believers. And we come to Sunday, we celebrate Sunday because that is when Christ rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And so we must come to the church every Sunday with gladness of heart an expectation to feast on the Lord, an expectation to give back to the Lord, an expectation to rest on Him. So let's look at what that looks like. The four primary reasons that we gather here, and you have to ask yourself this, is this true of you? And we must ask ourselves as a church, is this true? Is this the mark of Powell's Chapel? Those four things are this. The first is, do we have gladness of heart? What does that look like for us? Gladness of heart simply means this. Do we come here to worship God? And I don't mean worship God through three songs that Jared is leading us because it ought not to matter the songs that we sing. Whether you like the music, whether you hate the music, whether you like the words or not like the words, worship is not something that we do externally. Worship is what happens where? In the heart. So whatever words get played on that, put on that screen or whatever instrument gets played on this platform, if your heart isn't in it, then you don't have gladness of heart. 
Because here's what's going to be true about all of us. We are all white, Caucasian, and Americans that are going to get to heaven. And again, I say we will be the minority. And they're not going to have the songs that you want to sing in heaven. Like the angels aren't up there singing amazing grace. I promise that. And it's not going to be in the tune you want. But you won't care because you'll be in the presence of God and all that you have with a gladness of heart. Because your posture will be a posture of the heart to worship God. And I would ask you this morning, first and foremost, do you, do I, do we here at Powell's Chapel have gladness of heart when it comes to our worship? Are we more concerned about what Rob and Jared are singing, what they're playing? Are we more upset and angry that they're not doing it the way we always done it before? Because God does not care about how we've always done it before. That's called a preference. And I promise this, your preferences will be kicked out of heaven. So do you and I, do we come on Sunday with gladness of heart and an act of worship despite what we sing? Because if that's true, then we'll blow the roof off of this place because of what we sing. I know you haven't heard the song that he sang this morning, but it comes right out of Scripture. Oh, a thousand days are better in the court of God than anywhere else. That's the psalmist's words. Those aren't Jared's words. That's from the Bible. We sang the Bible to God. Don't you think he knows how he wants to be worshipped? This is the greatest hymnal you'll ever have. I'll say it again. This is the greatest hymnal you'll ever have. Isaac Watts has nothing on God. We come with gladness of heart this morning. The next is this. Do we come with feasting? See what the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 2 was the, the believers gathered together and they did what? They broke bread together. They feasted together. And I don't mean to put out this elaborate meal, though that would be awesome every Sunday. There's no doubt about that. But what Jesus is saying here in the text and what Jesus is saying through the Apostle Paul is that we ought to always come together and feast on God. That is why we do the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder of his body broken for us and his, pour, his blood pour out on us on us and for us. We ought always feast on God. I would love to do the Lord's Supper every Sunday in this building. Why? Because it's a reminder that we feast on God. And if we're not feasting on God, being reminded of what Christ's body did for you and Christ's blood did for you, then you're not feasting on God. You're eating scraps. Now we feast on God in this place. 
this morning. The next is this. I think in the seven years being here at Powell's Chapel, I may have mentioned this less than a handful of times. But when God's word says it, I'm going to say it. If you are going to be a believer, this is for you, Jonathan. You asked me this last week. If you're going to be a believer, then you must be obedient in your giving. That's what God's word says to us here in the text. It says that after they realized the victory they had through God, through their enemies, they did what? They gave all that they had. Giving is so essential for your obedience and my obedience and our church's obedience to understanding as we celebrate. We give to God, not because we're required to give to God, but because it's an act of our worship. It's an act of our obedience and it's an act of our celebration to God. And so when you put money into a plate, it's not out of obligation, it's out of celebration. And do you and do I and do we, the church, celebrate in our giving? It's an act of worship, not obligation. Are we giving to God? Are you giving to God? Am I giving to God? I don't care if it's a dollar or a thousand dollars. Remember what Jesus said to that poor woman that gave two little pennies. She gave more than the people that gave all that amount of money. Why? Because it came where? Not from her pocketbook, but from her heart. I don't care how much you give. Hear me when I say that as your pastor. I don't care if you give one penny. But what I do care about is that you would act in obedience and celebration in your giving. We celebrate and we're reminded we give because what? Christ gave himself for us. The greatest offering to ever be given to the world. We ought to celebrate that as we give back to God. And the last is this, and I am terrible at this last one. It says that they came and they had a holiday. Which just simply translates as this, that we would come and we would be restful people. Do we rest in God? And I don't mean be lazy in God. I mean, do we find our rest in God, our peace in God? See, I'll let you in on a little secret in my life. I know, maybe not, maybe it's not much of a secret. You're like, man, you are not that good. But here's what it looks like in my life. I look like a duck. I mean, I know not really, but you'll get the analogy. You ever seen a duck on a pond? They just kind of like do their thing. It's like it looks all peaceful on the top. But what's happening underneath the surface? Them little legs are going crazy to stay afloat. That's me in my life. You, you may think, man, Todd seems calm, cool, and collected most days. But if you could see underneath the surface, my legs are moving a thousand miles a second. 
rest. I'm not finding my rest in the Lord. I'm anxious. I'm fearful. Because I'm depending more on myself than I am on the Lord. And God has brought me great conviction this week. I'm asking myself, how do I put places of rest and rhythm in my life? How do I get still before the Lord and really do what Christ said? Come to me, all who are weary or anxious and heavy laden, and you will what? Find rest for your souls. My prayer, my plea with us, the church, with my own life, is that God would help me find rest for us. So again, as a way of application this morning, we come to God's house in an act of worship with gladness, with an anticipation to feast, an obedience to give as we rest in Christ. I wish that the book of Esther would have ended there, but it doesn't. That'd be a nice little way to tie up this sermon, put it in a bow, and say amen. But it doesn't end that way. And it's like, why, God? Why did you have to put these three last verses in? Because I think it's a reminder for us, as we come to the close of this book, they're having this celebration, they're feasting with gladness, they're giving and they're resting. And then it says this wicked king, Asawaris, opposes attacks on the land and the coastland and the seas and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of his high honor to which the king had advanced. This is Mordecai. Because there's the law of the Medes and the Persians. And then it says this. It says, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank King Asawaris, he was great among the Jews and popular. The multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace over his people. It's verse 1 that captures my attention. Like Verses 2 and 3 sound great. There's this moment in history, and it looks like again, this wicked king has power all over the people. And he opposes this tax. Now, what happens when taxes are imposed on us? Well, I don't know about you, but it takes my gladness away pretty fast. It takes my desire to feast away pretty fast. It takes my giving away super fast because I want to hoard. And it definitely takes my resting away. So I think God puts that reminder in this book to remind us there will always be things in our life that are going to want to take our gladness away, to take our feasting away, to take our giving away, and to take our rest away. I think he's put that in there to remind us that even when everything around us wants to attack us, there is one who still is in control. This ought to, verse 1, ought to point us back to God. Say, no matter what happens on this planet, God is still sovereign and God is still control. He books in the book of Esther with that idea. Hey, I'm sovereign and I'm in control. And don't let anything take away from your gladness, your feasting, your giving, 
and you're resting. Because why? I'm still on the throne. Would that be true of us today? Again, for us in closing, we come each Sunday into God's house. As we walk with the Lord outside of God's house in your home and with people, do you have a true gladness of heart? Do you have a true act of worship in your life? Are you feasting on God? God said this is the word of God. This is the bread of life. Do you and I feast on this daily? Do we give generously out of what God has given to us? And are we finding our rest in the Lord today? Let me pray for us.